Well, today, this Sunday, marks 20 years, 20 years since I began preaching at my first church after I graduated from seminary. 20 years, hard to believe. Even harder to believe, I started when I was 10 years old. 20 years. You know, you know what that means? That means I have preached about 1,000 Sunday morning sermons. That means I've gone through 10,000 pages of notes that I've spoken around 3,700,000 words. I feel like I need to apologize to, to somebody. <laughs> Countless bottles of no-dos have been consumed in the past 20 years. Now, that was a joke. No-dos, sermons. Surely you think that's funny. <laughs> think of the sermons you've heard. Say you're here this morning, you're 32. Maybe you've been sitting in the, sermon, in the service for, since you were seven years old. If you go to church almost every Sunday, that's 1,300 sermons you've heard in your short lifetime. Millions of words spoken. In addition to Sunday morning sermons, evangelical Christians like you and like me, we love to go to conferences, we love to go to seminars, we love to go to Bible studies, we download sermons from other pastors and listen to them, and we devour books. Think of all the words, all the words we've heard, all the words we've read. Words are good. With words, our infinite, eternal, unchanging God communicates profound truth to you and to me about who he is. Words are good. They are a tremendous blessing for our lives. But why do you think God has made all those words available to you and to me? Why do you think he puts such plentiful and bountiful resources at our disposal? Why has he blessed us in this way? Let's let the word of God answer that question for us this morning. As we come to James chapter 2, beginning in verse 14, I'm going to ask you to stand as we hear together the word of the one and only true and living God. James chapter 2. Verse 14, hear the word of the Lord. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even demons believe that and shudder. You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does, and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. 
Let's pray together. Lord, we pour out our hearts before you now and ask, Lord, that you would teach us through your word, accompanied by the power of your spirit. Father, open our ears to hear your truth. Open our eyes to see your truth. Show us, Father, who it is that you would have us to be and give us the courage to be that person. We commit ourselves now in humility as we come uh, to you and to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much. You may be seated. You know, you could call this letter uh, written by James the most unchristian, the most unchristian book in the New Testament. James, in his entire letter, only mentions the name of Jesus two times. That's it. Chapter 1, verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 1. James writes nothing at all about the incarnation, the amazing coming of Christ, of Jesus to earth. He writes nothing of the resurrection. Two, great truths of the Christian faith. James doesn't mention them. The word good news, the word gospel, they appear nowhere in this letter written by James. And for that reason, many people have wanted to to just cast James out of the New Testament. Martin Luther banished James to the appendix of his Bible. James, he said, has aimed to refute those who relied on faith without works. Luther says that James mutilates the scriptures. He said that James is a straw epistle compared to the great letters like Romans and Galatians. Therefore, Luther says, I will not place this epistle in my Bible among the proper leading books. Well, now you know what Martin Luther thinks. And it's true. The great doctrines of the church, the foundations of the Christian faith are missing from this letter. And perhaps that's because James believes that's just what they are. Foundations. Foundations that have already been laid. The people to whom James writes know the words. They've heard the words. And now it's time for them to build on on the rock-solid foundation of the truth that they've been given, of the knowledge that they have. We're so quick to judge others and to belittle them. Do we really believe? Do we really believe that James doesn't know what true faith is? Martin Luther was a brilliant man, a gift to the church. But why does he get to call James's faith into question and toss him to the side? Is it because that James looks out over the church and basically says this, enough with just words, enough with just talking, Enough with just saying, I believe. It's time to live it out. It's time to do something with what we claim. And so he writes in verse 14, What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith, there are the words, but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Saving faith, it was a given for James. Faith is what made James who he was. And everybody knew James's story. It was written in the Gospels. James was the younger brother of the Lord, Jesus. But Scripture tells us that he and his brothers Simon and Joseph and Judas, the four of them, they didn't believe in Jesus. And in fact, when the opportunity presented itself to them, they ridiculed Jesus, who he was in this 
task that he had come to do. Why? Why didn't they have faith? Perhaps it was difficult for them living under and growing up under the same roof as God in the flesh. Imagine the conversations that James might have had with his classmates or his neighborhood buddies. Well, you think you have it bad. Try living with one who was supposed to be conceived by the Holy Ghost and born of the Virgin Mary. Imagine. We might have felt the same way. None of us like the teacher's pet. The student that does everything right, just like the teacher wants, and puts the rest of us to shame, we try to bring that person down. Nobody likes the mama's boy who does everything just right and just lives his life to please his parents and do everything just like they like it. The child who doesn't want to live that way doesn't like the child who does want to live that way and and seeks to bring them down. Scripture tells us Jesus was submissive to his parents. He was. He was submissive to them. Scripture tells us that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. He cast a long shadow. How could James and his brothers measure up to that? I don't know why they didn't have faith. Perhaps it was pride and competition. Perhaps jealousy blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts toward their older brother. We know that James is not listed uh, in the disciples who followed Jesus as he traveled around for three years teaching. He wasn't at the cross with his mother when his own brother was crucified. He was not part of the group of the disciples to whom Jesus appeared when he was resurrected that first Easter morning. But after Jesus ascended into heaven, I mean, after he was resurrected and before he ascended into heaven 40 days later, when the disciples walked back to Jerusalem after Jesus had returned to heaven, they went back to the upper room. And there was James. And there was his mother. And there were his other brothers. And scripture says they all joined together constantly in prayer. Some point between Jesus' death on the cross and his ascension, James was granted the gift of faith. What he could not see while he was growing up, what he had not seen even as a young man in his 20s, suddenly becomes clear to him. And James believes. Now do you think, do you think that James would really say that He was granted this gift of faith because he had done so many good deeds. Do you think James would really say, well, I've tried so hard to live a perfect life and now I believe? Do you think he would say, now that I've finally measured up, I've been given the gift of faith? Is that what suddenly changes James? Because he earned it? No. The grace of God changed James. It was God who opened his eyes. To see what he could never see before, even when he had lived day after day under the same roof with Jesus. And by faith, James believed. And by faith, he understood who his brother was and what his brother had accomplished on the cross. And the ridicule is suddenly gone. So that James writes in chapter 1, verse 1, This letter is from James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus Christ. James gets it. Every title that belongs to the Lord, he gets it. He knows his brother's Lord. He knows his brother's the Christ. James knows what real saving faith is. And James quickly went on to be the head of the church in Jerusalem. He was greatly loved. He was greatly respected by all the church, including the apostles like Peter and John and Paul. And James's nickname was Old Camel Knees. Because his knees had become so hard, 
since he spent so much time down on his knees in worshiping God and in praying for the people. Everything about the life of James shouted, here is a man of faith. A faith that was so real and a faith that was so true that he would not allow that faith to be reduced or diminished to easily or flippantly spoken words. And so for James in this letter, it isn't what we say that we believe that distinguishes us as Christians. It's what we do. It's how we live our lives that set us apart as believers in Christ. If you and I skimmed through this letter quickly, we will find listed here practices of those who say, I believe, and yet their lives are inconsistent with saying, I believe. Chapter 1, we read of people in the church, in the church, who have a prevalence, as James says, of, of moral filth and evil in their lives, even though the Word of God has been implanted in them, and even though they say, I have faith, I believe. We read of people who, who hear the Word of God, but who ignore it, and do not do what it says, and yet they say, I have faith, I believe. In chapter 2, we read of people who have prejudice at work in their lives. People who are practicing discrimination. People who show preference to the wealthy, the rich, the well-dressed. And who treat them with special honor and attention by saying, Here is a good seat for you. And who say to the poor, You stand there. You sit at my feet. And yet they say, I have faith. I believe. Chapter 3, we have people who are gossiping, slandering, tearing one another down with their tongues, and still they say, I have faith. I believe. Who say, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. And then turn around and curse a person made in the image of God. Chapter 4, we read of people who fight among themselves, who want their own way, who say me first, and they quarrel with one another when they don't get all they want, and all the while they're saying, I have faith, I believe. Read of people who are so buddy-buddy with the world, so closely connected with the world that doesn't know Christ and what it does, that James calls it an adulterous relationship. People in the church who are having an affair with the world, and yet they say, I have faith. I believe. Jesus is Lord. We read of people who plan their own lives without consideration of the Lord's way or the Lord's will, who say tomorrow, today or tomorrow, we will go to this city or that city. We'll spend a year there. We'll carry on business. We'll make money. Instead of saying, if it's the Lord's will, if it's the Lord's will, we will do this or that in our lives. He doesn't figure into their planning, and yet they say, I have faith. I believe. In chapter 5, we read of people who have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence while failing to deal fairly with people who have helped them, people who have worked hard for them. They've treated them wrongly, and yet they say, I have faith. I believe. This is where I want to pull out my sunglasses and put on a ball cap 
and pop up the collar on, on my jacket and hope that nobody notices that the portrait that James has painted of people in the church looks a lot like me. And maybe it looks a lot like you as well. Because there are inconsistencies in all of our lives, inconsistencies between what we say we believe and how we live out our lives. There's a disconnect between all of those words that we've heard, all of those words that we've read, and the way we live our lives. And so James wants to to wake us up to that disconnect, to wake us up to that inconsistency, so that we are aware of it and so that we do something about it for our own sakes and for the sake of the world who will perish if we don't wake up, if we don't do something about it. You know, every speaker, every writer seeks to get the attention of their audience because if they don't get their attention, they'll stop reading the book, they'll stop listening to what they have to say and so often they will use shock to get the attention Uh, 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 of their audience. And that's what James does here. Look in verse 19. James is writing along. He says, you believe that there is one God. Good. Yay. You believe. Then he says, even the demons believe that and shudder. (gasps) Whoa. What? Demons believe? And the same word is used to describe their faith as is used to describe our faith. Demons are convinced that there is one God and, and that Jesus is the Son of God. And that's shocking. And so if the reader asks, oh dear, how is my faith different than than the faith of the demons? They believe and I believe. How is it different? Good. Because James has just set us up for the answer that he wants to provide for us. How is our faith set apart? How is it different? The answer is works. That's what sets our faith apart. What we do, how we live our lives. Look in verse 17. He, He says, without works, faith without works is dead. You know, I can go in my backyard, and if I see a trunk there with branches growing out of it, and I see green leaves on that on on those branches, then I say this: I have a living tree in my backyard. That's what I call it because that's what I have. But if I go in my backyard and see a trunk with branches falling off of it, and no de- and no leaves on it. I can say I have a tree, but that's not what I have, is it? I can call it a tree, but what do I really have? I have a dead stump. So you can call it what you like. But whatever you think you have, whatever you say you have, it's not faith, not true faith. If there are no branches, if there are no green leaves of good works and right living, it may be something. But it's not biblical faith. The sermons I've preached, the sermons we've all heard, the conferences, the seminars, the Bible studies that we've taught and attended, those blessings, they are the food. They are the food, the nutrients from which our roots draw the ability and the desire and the stamina to do good works. And so don't pit one against the other. Faith against good works, as James anticipated his audience would do. Look in verse 18. He says, but someone will say, I have faith. Another will say, I have deeds. As if somehow it's okay to have one without the other. Well, my spiritual gift is faith. Well, my spiritual gift is good works. Don't care so much about faith, but I like to do a lot of good things. 
No, no, no. The two cannot be separated. Either you have both of them or you have nothing. Nothing, anyway, that will please God because true faith is what pleases him. And true faith has works and right living. Look in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such safe faith, can such faith save him? And what answer does James want us to come up with? The answer is no. Such a faith, a profession of faith, a claim of faith without works cannot save him, and faith like that doesn't do anybody good, any good anyway. Look in verse 24. James writes there, You see that a person is justified by what he does, and not by faith alone. Uh-oh, we're good Protestants. What are we supposed to do with that? You know, didn't we, didn't we break away from the Catholic Church 500 years ago because we believe that they believe that they are saved by their good works and we don't want to have anything to do with that? And then here goes James saying we're justified by what we do and not by faith alone. How do we understand it? Justification has two senses in Scripture. One is the justification that you and I think of most often and for which we are so grateful. The point that we come to in our lives while we finally acknowledge, I have a problem. I have a problem with sin. There's nothing I can do about my problem. There's nothing anyone can do about my problem. The only one who can deal with my sin issue, who can take care of it, who can relieve me and release me from it, is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we turn away from the sin that we have confessed and we turn in faith to Christ. And at that moment, in God's courtroom, his gavel falls. And he declares that we are not guilty. And we are set free from the curse and the penalty of sin and given the promise of eternal life. And we are released from the responsibility of paying for our own sin. God says to us, you go free. Jesus, my son on the cross, has paid the price. He's paid the price. You go free. It's an act that God does for us. No charges remain against us because God accepts Christ's sacrifice on the cross and puts it to our account. Now that is justification. Are you thankful for it? Uh, Are you thankful for it? Acts 13, 38, 39. Therefore, my brothers, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is justified. From everything you could not be justified from by the law of Moses. Romans 3, 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's all of us. But we are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. This is justification unto salvation. And this is what Paul addresses in his great epistles, like Romans and like Galatians. But then there's the same Greek word used for justify, which has this sense. It means to prove right or to vindicate. In 1 Timothy 3.16, we read this. Beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. Jesus appeared in a body, was vindicated, justified by the Spirit, 
was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, and was taken up in glory. This verse says Jesus was justified. He was vindicated in that he was declared, not that he was declared not guilty, that, not that kind of justification, but that in he was proven to be who he said he was by the, the Spirit of God. It was demonstrated that Jesus was indeed the Son of God. And that's the kind of justification that James is talking about here. You say you believe, that's easy enough. Now justify that claim. Vindicate that claim. Prove that claim. Show me that you believe. It was proved that Jesus was who he claimed to be by the Spirit of God. Now you prove that you are who you claim to be. A believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul and James are actually fighting the same battle on different fronts. Paul is attacking self-righteous legalism. People who do good and try to obligate God. Look at all the good I've done now, God. You have to save me. You have to love me because all the things I've done for you. No, you're justified by grace. Period. James, on the other hand, is attacking self-righteous indifference. People who do not care enough to live out what they claim to believe. And both Paul and James use Abraham as an example. Both of them say that Abraham had faith. He believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. But James goes on to show that belief in action. Abraham said, I believe. God said, offer your son. Abraham did not say, oh no, Lord, not that, not my son. Abraham obeyed. And with that same faith, he trusted God. Abraham believed it was his job to obey God, and it was God's job to work it out in whatever way he saw fit. And we know the rest of the story. God did do that. He didn't sacrifice his son. God provided the ram instead. And so it is for you and me. If our faith is real, if it's more than the faith of the demons, then it will be evident in our lives. So James would shock us as he shocked the first readers of his letter into looking, looking at our words, into examining what we know, and asking ourselves, what do I mean when I say I believe? What does it look like in my life? Those words that make up what I say I believe, the words that I read, the words that I listen to, to help me understand better what it is I believe and and who God is, what do I do with those words once I have them? It's true we look for the word Jesus in this letter and find it almost entirely absent. We look for the word gospel, we can't find it anywhere. But the voice of Jesus and the message of Jesus rings out from this letter more than in any letter in the New Testament. Jesus shocked his disciples, when he said, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. James writes, chapter 1, verse 4, And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Jesus says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. James writes, chapter 1, verse 5, If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. Jesus says, I tell you the truth. If anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, 
but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. James says, chapter 1, verse 6, but when he asks, he must, he must believe and not doubt. Because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. Jesus said, therefore, anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house upon the rock. The rain came, the floods rose, the wind blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them to practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain came, and the storms ro- streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. James says, chapter 1, verse 22, Do not merely listen to the word, and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. One more. Jesus says, now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. James says, but the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in all that he does. I could go on and on. There are so many connections between the letter of James and Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. More than any other parallels, uh, in the same amount of space, more than any other epistles in the same amount of space. For almost everything we read in the book of James, we can recall some statement that Jesus made that might have inspired it. And where there are no direct parallels, we suspect that maybe James is writing something that Jesus said that no one else had written before him. And the point of saying all that, the point of comparing Jesus, what he says, and James, what he says, is to convince us that this what we've talked about this morning. It's what Jesus wants from you and from me. Jesus, just like James, doesn't want just your words. He wants your life. He wants your actions. And he gives you his spirit. And he gives me his spirit to motivate us and to empower us and sustain us as we go about doing the things that he wants us to do and living the life that he wants us to live. And so unless we want to move Jesus to the appendix of our Bibles, neither should we move James there when he calls us to act. At some point, all of us here have to be bold enough to ask this question, or bold enough to say this, words are not enough. And when you and I are bold enough to say, you know what, words are not enough, when we admit that, then we have to be ready to be. We have to be ready to do. We have to. I'm going to state the obvious as I finish. There is no lack of work to be done. Do you agree with me on that? Think there's a lack of work to be done? No. No lack of strangers to be brought in to a family. No lack of hungry to feed. No lack of thirsty to give a drink. There's no lack of poor to clothe or sick to care for. No lack of prisoners to be visited. There's no lack of the lost with whom we can share the good news of the gospel. There's prejudice to be fault. There are inequities 
that need to be made right. There's love. There's grace. There's mercy. It needs to be actively extended. There's never-ending change and growth that needs to take place in your life and in mine. God has blessed you. God has blessed me with an abundance of truth, an abundance of knowledge, an abundance of words, an abundance of resources. And you know why he did that. Now what will you do with them? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do give you thanks again for your word that was inspired by your spirit. Lord, how you inspired your earthly, biological brother, James, to, to write the things he wrote. Lord, how you dramatically wrought a change in his life from unbelief to belief to faith. Lord, the same change that you have brought in so many of our lives here this morning. And we freely and gratefully acknowledge, Lord, that it's all of you. It's all of your work. It's all of your grace. And by faith, we acknowledge and receive what you have done for us by taking our place, by paying for our sin on the cross. Father, if there be those here this morning who still are in that world of unbelief and disbelief, we pray that the same powerful spirit that converted James and converted those of us who believe that you would be at work in their lives right now. Father, even in this moment, may they see their need for you, confess their need for you, turn to you in faith for their salvation. Lord, all of us together who have done that, received your grace, I pray that we would be people of work, good works. Lord, you've prepared them, your word says, in advance for us to do. You've saved us, Lord, for the good works that you have prepared from eternity past for us to do. And I pray that we would get about that business, Lord. I pray that we'd take our eyes off of ourselves. We're so focused on ourselves and our need, and we're so greedy for more and more, more words, more teaching, more truth, another conference, another seminar, another Bible study, another sermon. Those are good things, Lord, if we use them to strengthen us and sustain us so that we can move out into the world with the good news of the gospel. And not only with the words of the gospel, but but the work of the gospel, doing what you call us to do, to care for the sick, to for the oppressed, for the poor, on and on, Lord, we could list the things that you call us to do. So I pray that you would give us the courage and the strength and the desire to be people who live out what we say we believe. So we pray this and commit ourselves to you now in Jesus' name. Amen.